HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. Learn more at appeal.com. This week on Meet in 3, we look at the ways indoor and outdoor spaces are being reconceptualized during the pandemic to better suit new modes of living, working, and eating. It's brought a vibrancy and an energy back to the city streets that were so dearly missed during the height of the pandemic. This is about how we can grow indoors all year round uh, using proprietary technology that we've developed. How do I have someone understand, look, don't take a next to the June berries because you can eat those. That's free food. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today I have the very great pleasure of welcoming to my show for the first time the wonderful Lisa Held, who is the host of The Farm Report, also on Heritage Radio Network. So uh, in the future, if you haven't listened to Lisa before, now you can toggle back and forth between the two of us, and you will literally know everything you need to know about the agricultural community in the United States of America. Um, (laughs) Just in case you have not listened to Lisa, I'm going to tell you about her now. Uh, She has a fabulous CV. She is a reporter, a writer, and an editor whose primary focus is on the food system. She tells stories that show how food production and consumption impact public health, social justice, and the environment. Her work has appeared in numerous publications online and in print, including Civil Eats, uh, where she is a senior policy reporter, uh, NPR's The Salt, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Eater, um, Edible Manhattan, Heated, and Condé Nast Traveler. And as I said, she hosts and produces The Farm Report on this very same network. So um, I always read Civil Eats. I don't know if everybody else is tuned into them, but uh, if you don't support Civil Eats, uh, please let me urge you to do so now. Lisa, being a senior policy reporter for them, recently published an article on September 21st uh, that was all about uh, sort of the Biden campaign platform uh, as it relates to climate change and agriculture. So, um, Lisa, tell us, what 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 are you hearing about that? Tell us what that platform looks like, such as it is. <laughs> sure. Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on, Katie. I'm Ooh. so excited to be here. And you make me sound really good. That's exciting. So. You are really good. You're excellent. Your reporting is first rate. I mean, oh. you should not be modest about that. 
Well, thank you so much. Um, sure. Yeah. And so, so when it comes to um, Biden's rhetoric around climate change and agriculture, um, I think, well, a good place to start is, you know, on climate change overall, the rhetoric between the two campaigns, Republicans and Democrats, uh, it couldn't be more different, right? So um, yeah. President Trump has expressed doubts related to climate science in the past and has largely removed the word climate change from our federal government's vocabulary, including at the USDA, where um, reports that come out, they just completely avoid the use of the term. Um, wow. And, you know, he's reversed innumerable regulations on emissions in terms of vehicles, fossil fuels, and that also extends to agriculture. Um, there have been some changes to regulations, for instance, on emissions from uh, concentrated animal feeding operations, among other things. So on the flip side, Democrats have made the climate crisis a front and center issue across the board. And, you know, in terms of shifting away from fossil fuels, expanding renewable energy, and they're really paying attention to agriculture and how farmers can mitigate climate change um, in a really big way, more than ever before, I would say, during this this campaign. It, during the primary, too, a lot of the of candidates talked about uh, climate and agriculture. And the Biden agenda and the, the Democratic Party's 2020 platform both include a zero emissions goal for agriculture and a lot of um, attention to increased investment in conservation practices and some specific plans on how to get there. Uh, what, one other quick thing, too, just to note, Biden actually even ran an ad in Michigan with a tart cherry farmer. Um, Michigan's a huge tart cherry growing state. And mm -hmm. the farmer in the ad talked about the direct connection between how the seasons had been changing and impacting his farm and how he supports uh, Biden so he can continue to grow fruit. So it's, you know, even with COVID and all of this, yeah, there, it, people are talking about it. <laughs> What a relief. Um, so so one, some of the differing strategies uh, that he is being presented with, I have to say, uh, didn't move me in, to any great degree. I mean, it's, it's great that he's uh, paying attention to this. And, and as you mentioned, during the primaries, I remember Elizabeth Warren was one of the very first uh, candidates who went out to Iowa and held a big town hall. Uh, I think it was in Storm... Uh, Storm Storm Lake in Iowa. Storm Lake, yes, yeah. right. Storm Lake, Iowa. And Art Cullen, the wonderful reporter there, uh, you know, I actually had him on the show to talk about it. Um, she, uh, so she she came out of the box with ideas about agriculture, and then she was followed by others. But she really did seem to be um, one of the first to kind of you know deal with this in a very concrete way. So when you when you talk about some of the strategies um, that he is mulling over on this platform, uh, whether it's um, you know additional conservation stewardship uh, incentives or something else, what who 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 is in his ear? Who is talking to him? Because it ain't just the tart cherry farmer. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a range of um, there, there's some disagreement in the party about like what the right steps are to address the issue. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's interesting you bring up the Elizabeth Warren example, because, I mean, I think people kind of understand that in the Democratic Party, there is a range of um, opinions on other issues like, you know, healthcare. You're, you're, you could be in the, the Medicare for all wing of the party or the we just need to keep the Affordable Care Act and make it a little better. And it's the same kind of thing with climate and ag. There's sort of the super progressive approaches and then on down the line. Um, and I think, I mean, in terms of who has his ear, so far, it seems like more of the conservative um 
wing of the party has has kind of been in Biden's ear. Um, his his main advisor um, on ag is Tom Vilsack, who was the agricultural secretary under President Obama. Um, but he's now the CEO of the Dairy Export Council, which really represents the interests of the biggest industrial dairy farms in the country. So yeah. that kind of you know, <laughs> that tells you something about who he's listening to. Um, yeah, I yeah. found that quite troubling, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm I'm way over Tom Vilsack. Yeah. Once he moved into the lobby and once he took that revolving door and went right into supporting Dairy Farmers of America, which is this, you know, for people who aren't following dairy, it's a giant uh, quote unquote cooperative, but is largely responsible for the tanking of the dairy industry in the United States. So I, I don't love Tom Vilsack, uh, but I appreciate that he had some progressive stuff going on because he had Kathleen Merrigan as his deputy secretary who introduced the one, you know, your farmer, know your food uh, program, which was much touted by the Obama administration in the first uh first term and kind of less listened to, I think, in the second. Hmm. What, who else, though? I mean, I mean, is it is it National Sustainable Agricultural Coalition? Uh, wh- who are the progressive groups that that might be getting into his ear? Or are they really being crowded out by uh, mega, you know, large industry? Um, I mean, I think that they're certainly um, they're certainly trying to get the campaign to pay attention. And um, I, yeah, groups like the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition and Friends of the Earth and and a lot of the more progressive environmental and farm groups, uh, Farm Family Action is a big one. They've been speaking out about um, kind of what they think the campaign should be supporting in terms of small family farms and um, more progressive action. But I mean, it's, it's hard to say exactly at this point what he's really hearing or what he'll support. Um, beyond what's in his actual plan, which there is a lot in the plan. Um, but, you know, he's hasn't been, it's such a weird campaign season. It's kind of hard to say, yeah. like, how is he responding to those concerns? Because he hasn't really been out there on the campaign trail in the, the way that we normally see, you know, because of COVID. And um, sure. So. So so the strategies that he is being presented with are sort of more of, of the same. So in other words, like, for example, I wanted you to remind listeners what measures the USDA has funded to mitigate climate change in the last, say, 10, 12 years. Um, that would be uh, sort of EQIP. I forget what that stands for. EQIP. Mm-hmm. Tell me again what that acronym is for. It, uh, and then the conservation uh, stewardship incentives uh, to, uh, you know, to carbon sink and cover crop and no-till and all that jazz. So talk a little bit about some of those measures yeah. that we're already supposedly doing. Yeah, sure. So um, EQIP and, and CSP are two of the most popular um, USDA conservation programs for working land. So EQIP is the Environmental Quality Incentives Program and CSP is the right, thank co- you. Conservation Stewardship Program. Um, both are, are really popular and have been through, through you know Democratic and Republican administrations for some time. Um, and I, that's actually one area where I think um, Biden definitely is supports expanding those conservation programs, um, mm. both to just um, increase investment and, and provide more funding, because especially EQIP, it is year after year, there's way more demand for funding than there is uh, money to go around. So, you know, a lot Democrats across the board support just really just putting more funding into that program so more farmers can access that money. Um, and CSP is kind of like, EQIP is sort of the entry level conservation program. It's kind of 
uh-huh. getting a little bit of money to build a hoop house or, or build waste storage, um, kind of like smaller projects. And then CSP is sort of like the more comprehensive, really in-depth conservation work. And uh, yeah, Democrats across the board also support investing more in that program. And I mean, it, those programs have been continuing under Trump because they're, you know, they're part of the USDA infrastructure. Um, although the USDA did in the past year actually issue rule changes that that they had to mm-hmm. because of um, as a result of the farm bill, they had to kind of make these changes to both programs. And um, both of those changes were not were met with a lot of um, skepticism from groups um, like NSAC. Uh, they basically they they in both cases, there were a lot of changes they were supposed to make that would have made the programs potentially more focused around climate, the climate crisis. And it it doesn't appear in these draft rules that they're really actually doing what the farm bill instructed them to do, like prioritizing projects that, um, for instance, focus on soil health above something that maybe isn't a, a, you know, greenhouse gas emissions reducing project. Um, And they also shifted both programs to, they raised the payment limits. So basically that just means lots, they doubled the payment limits. So bigger payments are going to benefit bigger farms. Um, So there's been a lot of kind of, uh, outrage on that front from some groups sure, but of course yeah but but I think it, I mean these conservation programs um are one area that Democrats definitely um really agree that like investing in these programs is a good idea for climate and ag like the senate house the senate um report on the climate crisis the house report uh there's like three different pieces of legislation and Biden's plan all mention these conservation programs as a strategy. So that's like one point yeah. of agreement. Well, that's encouraging. You know, Lisa, just out of curiosity, and, and you don't have to say you know that, I mean, if you don't know this, that's fine. But what what is the position of, of say, guys like Chuck Grassley or a Joni Ernst, who fascinatingly could not name the price of soy in a recent uh, debate uh, with, an, with, a, with a contender, senatorial contender, um, what, what, what is the position of those, uh, you know, those people and especially the house, uh, or the Senate, Senate's, um, agricultural committee, uh, are they, are they on board? In other words, are they, are they on board with expanding these programs or are they, uh, do they prefer to, to, for instance, uh, go along with the rule changes being proposed in which, uh, the amount of money is being shifted from one group to another, or uh, the rate of expansion is is going to benefit uh, big farmers rather than small and medium sized farms. Did I make that clear? I sometimes go on and on <laughs> with questions. I'm just I don't know why I can't get better at this. I mean, ten years in, you'd think I'd be really good at it, but no, I always have these multi part questions that make you know listeners and you know, the question, just think, Jesus Christ, what did this woman just ask? <laughs> no, no, I, I totally understand. And I do the same thing. I, I sort of start to think about what I want to ask. And then, it, you know, it takes a little while to, to get there. I, I totally yeah. get it. Um, but I, I think, I, I don't know if I can answer that question really, uh, you know, really specifically. I, I don't know exactly if, for instance, if those people you mentioned have signed on to support um, the agriculture agricultural resilience act which would expand these programs I would pro- I would assume not because I think it's pretty squarely in the uh, democratic camp at this point okay. um, but I think like the the programs that exist 
at the USDA, I, I don't think Republicans are necessarily opposed to those programs. They, they, the money goes to farmers. I think that they're at this point, they're pretty much accepted programs. I think where the, Mm. where the pushback might come from is they might say, we just don't want to spend any more money um, on things Mm. like this, you know, which is really kind of silly because I mean, for the past year, the past all every year of the Trump administration, and especially this past year, all we've really been doing as a government is giving out money to farmers, um, you know, good or bad. I'm not even making a judgment. That's just what has been happening. So sure. um, without any precondition of you have to use it for this or, you know, so it's it's kind of a it's a little bit of a weird position to be like, well, we don't want to spend more money because we're conservatives. But <laughs> this administration is handing out no. a lot of money. Well, they hand out a lot of money because they need to buy those votes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. You know, they, they've screwed the farmers. Even the even the mega mega ag business is hurting hard. Uh, you know, the soy farmers, the corn farmers. I mean, that's really primarily who we're talking about here because these are the these are the uh, the entities that really must and need to pursue these conservation programs because it is their cropping and their cropping methods that are doing the you know the largest amount of damage in terms of growing of growing anything uh, because of the you know all of the agrochemicals that have to go into uh, maintaining uh, the, the uh, you know, the bushel yield per acre. Um, right. <laughs> so they can extract every last drop from the soil, you know, before they, well, of course, once climate change really happens and they can't grow corn and soy anymore in Iowa, I, you know, well, I don't know what we're going to do then. We'll have a big dust bowl. Right. Anyway, um, let's move on though. I want to talk about, cause this was a very interesting pe- uh, part of your piece, by the way, that piece, if you want to go back people, September 21st, I believe, uh, is when it ran in Civil Eats. Um, do read it because it contains a lot of links to information that will help you understand um, more of this big picture. Um, but one of the things you referenced, Lisa, was um, that the Senate Democrats Special Committee on the Cri- Climate Crisis Report, <laughs> which I have begun reading, um, they propose participation in carbon markets. Now, I, I, I don't see that as an enviro-friendly tactic, frankly. Um, but I, I, I did want to ask about that. I mean, I'm assuming it's only for uh, concentrated animal feeding operations, for uh, mega ag and corn and soy. Um, I'm assuming that smaller farmers would not be part of that market. Uh, tell us a little bit about what that is, um, what that what that entails. Yeah, um, carbon markets are, are very controversial um, on on in some places, but it is interesting because you know the the report you mentioned. So the Senate um, report on the climate crisis uh, recommended carbon markets and the house report on the climate crisis did not endorse carbon markets as a solution. Um, But there's also a piece of legislation right now called the growing climate solutions act, which would essentially make it easier for farmers to participate in carbon markets. And that has been endorsed by um, a wide range of it's actually pretty bipartisan in terms of the support. Um, Mm. But it's also been endorsed by um, really big groups that represent big ag, like the American Farm Bureau um, and big agribusiness companies. Um, so it's it's kind of uh, it's just I think you know telling to just see that 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 has actually got some momentum behind it. Um, and right. so I want to get into kind of the controversy. Uh, sorry, I'm going on and on, but uh, I want to pl- no, go on and <laughs> on. That's what you're I want to plug another. I want to <laughs> plug another story before I do, which is. Um, 
my colleague at Civil Eats, Goja, wrote a story called Are Carbon Markets for Farmers Worth the Hype, which ran on Civil Eats a ah. few weeks ago. So I would encourage uh, yep. listeners to, to go read that if you want to get more into this issue. So yeah, so basically the way this would work is, you know, carbon markets already exist. And when companies want to offset their emissions, they, you know, invest in tree planting or building windmills for wind power and they offset their emissions. So the idea is, well, why can't we do that? with farmers and pay them to build their soil health in a way that sequesters carbon, takes it out of the atmosphere and puts it into the ground um, to reduce emissions in in our country and on the planet. Um, but, you know, as you, it, there's a lot of reasons it's a controversial idea. One, which you mentioned, is a lot of people say there's the, the only farms that are going to benefit from this are big commodity farms. Part of the reason for that is that the prices for each credit are so low that it really only makes sense and helps a farmer when you have vast amounts of acreage. So, you know, it's, if you have a five acre farm and you're doing the, you're, you know, you're doing livestock, uh, um, you know, chickens on pasture and you have diverse vegetable production and you're organic and it, it, but if it's five acres and you're getting, you know, $10 $10 an acre or something, it's just not going to do it. It's not going to be meaningful to you. <laughs> but if you have, you yeah, know, 3,000 acres, it starts to become um, really meaningful. And so those farmers are going to be the ones that benefit. Um, and just, sorry, what one other quick big controversy is just that um, carbon measurement still and, and how, you know, the ability of soil to hold carbon is still a very... Um, complex question that science hasn't quite figured out. Um, You know, is the sampling being taken deep, deep enough? Soil can store a finite amount of carbon. Once it's like saturated, can you add more? How long does it stay in the soil? Um, How does the, the soil type affect how much carbon is being stored, you know, based on the climate and other conditions? So there's a lot that is tricky about how to measure this and who should really be rewarded um, on in these markets. Um, so it's, I, it's a really, I mean, I, I'm, I'm interested in what happens next with this. Cause it's, it's kind of, you know, a lot of people are really pushing for it and then there is some opposition and it doesn't break down completely along, you know, party lines or environmentalists versus farmers. It's, it's kind of uh, all mixed up a little bit at this point. It is very complex. I mean, I, you know, in the, on the one hand, I see it as a, as a tool for encouraging large farms to uh, do, you know, and uh, include better practices, like you said, like building, you know, growing tree breaks or whatever. Um, On the other hand, it also kind of gives them carte blanche to do whatever they want. That's a, yeah, that's one of the criticisms too, right? Like it's, so that 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 to me is a very slippery slope, and I I find it totally suspect. So we'll we'll continue. We will revisit this at a future date, Lisa. Um, but in the meantime, I am going to um, ask you one more question, then we'll do a quick uh, sponsor drop. Um, but by, again, uh, just to push back on on Biden's um, you know platform, he supports biofuels big mm-hmm. time. Um, and he also has said that he won't. Okay, this is a different thing, and I'm, I'm just making a drawing a parenthesis here. But he's also said he won't ban fracking, which I think is terrible. Um, but anyway, to go back to the biofuels, um, biofuels are not so freaking climate friendly, right? Um, and so, and what struck me in your article is that uh, a lot of um, 
you know, a lot of the these programs really kind of keep the status quo as the status quo, if you, you know, if you see what I mean. In other words, you know, when you talk about supporting biofuels, which have been proven uh, to be really a very inefficient use of uh, land and and crops, um, I forget what the ratio is, but it's, you know, it costs a dollar seventy five to produce a dollar's worth of biofuel or something like yeah. that. Right. Um, it's, it's 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 not a great return. And it was essentially, if I recall correctly, it was essentially a, a Bush uh, W Bush um, uh, concession to the corn lobby uh, to uh, create the ethanol program, because, of course, most ethanol is, is produced from corn corn or soy, as I understand it. I mean, I think there are other uh, other products that you can use, but those are the two primary ones. Um, so so the fact that he's still supporting that seems kind of suspect to me. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing that that reflects the influence of big ag in his uh, rural strategies. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think biofuels are, well, eth- what we're really talking about here is is ethanol, because, I mean, I, I think there's there's discussion about biofuels and are there ways to um, invest in developing biofuel technology to use different, more sustainable crops, and, and are there ways to make biofuels more efficient and, you know, not have the kind of... Um, negative environmental impacts along the way, like, you know, growing commodity corn and contributing to soil depletion and dead zones and all that. So there, I think there, there, there is a, a portion of the environmental movement that, that thinks that paying attention to ways to improve biofuels could be a good thing. But a lot of people don't agree that ethanol is like you, you mentioned is a, is a good thing for um, the environment. But I mean, I, I think it's just at this point, you know, commodity farmers depend, so many are growing corn for, for ethanol. And at this point, you know, no candidate really wants to upset that. I mean, this issue is really big. Mm. The, the national farmers union there, they represent, um, they're sort of middle of the road. They represent farmers and they're, they, they are one of the few organizations who I would say like, they're, they're not only representing big ag, they're not only representing small farmers, they really do kind of like cut across a wide political swath. Um, and they're, you know, ethanol is their number one issue. I saw, I, I watched a Biden roundtable where they had farmers um, talking about the, the issues that were important to them and ethanol just came up over and over and over. I think it's just, it's just wow. like, there's so many people that now their livelihood depends on it that shifting away from it is going to take real like a sort of a radical political stance and he's just not he's not ready to do that right now and you know actually what one thing um eric diebel from the national sustainable agriculture coalition one thing he said in the article that i was just looking at it before this and you know he said we're looking at the end of maybe a 30, 40, 50 year arc of concentration and consolidation. And there's a notion that not rocking any boats is the right play right now. And I think this kind of falls into that. It's just like so many people because of the economic situation right now care about holding on to this, that they're just, that's, that's the thing that the campaign is, is going with right now, you know? Right. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Well, that makes total sense to me. I mean, why, why would you alienate and scare off, an already terrified population of people 
uh, who, thanks to Trump's trade policies, are, are seeing these disastrous declines in their uh, you know, revenue streams. So um, with that, we'll take a short break uh, and we'll be right back with Lisa Held, host and producer of The Farm Report on this network, as well as a senior uh, investigative reporter for Civil Eats. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at Heritage Radio Network, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away. It also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. A peel works with nature to reduce waste across the food system, from the farm to the kitchen. A peel helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal. Food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. Why I bother to repeat that, given that this is a podcast? I don't know. I'm just pretending that I'm, you know, a real radio podcaster. But anyway, I mean, a real radio broadcaster as opposed to podcaster. <laughs> Doesn't it make you feel so important when you do that? Um, so... <laughs> I want to pivot. I want to pivot our favorite word of 2020, right? I'm going to mm-hmm. pivot now. Um, I want to pivot to um, concentrated animal feeding operations. Of course, meat is my favorite subject, Lisa, as you know. And last year, Senator Cory Booker introduced a bill to place a moratorium on new CAFOs, as they are uh, as their acronym, and a plan to phase all CAFOs out over the next 20 years. So, where where do you think that bill stands at this point? I mean, yes, I know it's on McConnell's desk, never to be seen again. But just you know, in the general scheme of things. Um, do you think that that, uh, that that plan is too radical uh, for anyone to want to back? Or is it something that uh, there is a wing of the Democratic Party that would support uh, trying to help farmers phase out of uh, basically the indentured servitude in which they now find themselves as uh, people who raise primarily hogs and, and chickens? But, you know, pretty much everybody is screwed in the animal world there. Um, so, so what are, what are the chances of this one going sure. forward? Um, well, first of all, let me just clarify something really quickly, which is, um, mm. the, so the, the legislation you're talking about, the farm system reform act, it wouldn't actually phase out yeah. all CAFOs, um, in the next 20 years. It's just large CAFOs. So the US, USDA has uh-huh. a three tier, okay. like a definition system they use small, medium, large. So the ones that would be that would actually be gone with this legislation are the largest. Um, And I think it's kind of important to make that distinction just because, you know, he's, he's not saying you can't have a lot of animals in in one place. It's like, just these really, really massive um, operations at the top. Um, But yeah, I mean, it was introduced last year, and it kind of went nowhere because this is a, you know, an issue that I think most most people would consider um, 
you know, radical kind of off the table. Um, but then the legislation did pick up some new momentum in the past couple of months. Um, there were 300 environmental and agriculture groups that sent a letter of support um, to Congress. And, and then two big name Democrats threw their weight behind the bill, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, which, you know, they're, they're right. the left wing super progressive arm, but they also are really, you know, some of the biggest names in the party right now. So, um, sure. I, I mean, all that being said, it's, I, I don't, I don't think that that piece of legislation is going to move at any time soon. I think I, I actually interviewed, um, Senator Booker about it about a month in early September and, you know, one thing he mm-hmm. said, I, I pressed him on this. I was like, I, I you know, here's your plan, yeah. but what it, this isn't going to pass. What's really going to happen? And and his kind of, um, he kind of doubled down on the idea that it's, this is such a new idea to sort of regulate industrial animal agriculture, right? It's just hasn't been done much at all in the past few decades. And and the rhetoric is changing. And I think there there is some, um, there is definitely sign of, public sentiment about this issue changing. And what will probably happen yes. is maybe this piece of legislation won't pass as is, but little pieces of it might get picked up. You know, may, like for instance, um, it also has like country of origin labeling in it. It also has um, incentives. This is cool. Mm. It has a program that would give incentives to, to contract farmers who want to get out of um, the CAFO system to pay them to transition their systems to like pasture-based livestock or so maybe that could like get incorpor- incorporated into the next farm bill or so I think like maybe what we'll see is these little pieces will get picked up and you know that will give it some momentum but I at this point it doesn't look like it's going to move and it also doesn't seem like most people in the party are ready to support it. The Actually, I should add the Democratic Party platform for 2020, there were a bunch of groups that were pushing the party to include language on regulating and um, phasing out CAFOs, and it didn't make it into the platform. So, yeah. Very interesting. Wow. Yeah, it's a powerful, powerful lobby to push up against. I mean, we are talking about some of the most profitable companies in the world, Uh, JBS, Smithfield, Cargill, Archer Daniel Midland. I mean, not that they're directly related to CAFOs. They don't raise hogs, but they raise the feed that go yeah. to the hog. You know what I mean? So, I mean, it is, it's a lot of people really, really want to keep the status quo and to keep building on the status quo. So I can see it, it being a, a very, yeah. very tough haul. Well, uh, and, and things, also, but, I mean, it's, it's kind yeah. of funny, like, you know, before this, the this year, the past couple of years, you never even heard a, a Senator, say the names of companies like that in a, in a negative way. Like they're, they're that powerful True. that that was not even done. And I mean, that has changed. I mean, Senator Booker is out there yelling about Cargill and Smithfield. And I mean, part of that might be because he is up for reelection in New Jersey and not Iowa and not, you know, but, but, <laughs> you know, but at the All same right. time, it, it is different. There's definitely, you can feel a little bit of a, a, a rhetorical shift and a willingness to, um, to talk about these companies um, and what and how they're affecting farmers and the environment and people in a new way, I think. Well, I, I do think that that uh, is a direct result of advocacy groups um, like NSAC, um, but also even Heritage Radio Network. I mean, just 
you know, letting people, letting people sort of see, you know, peek behind that curtain. What does this really mean to have cheap meat? And I can promise you 10 years ago, nobody was thinking about yeah. this. People did not know how their meat was produced. They did not know how their food was produced or how it got to the table. I mean, that really has been a function of the last 10 years of advocacy groups um, across the board who have tried to, you know, give consumers a more a rational explanation for why we spend so little yeah. money on food <laughs> as opposed to every other nation. Um, but let's move on for a second, because I do want to talk about advocacy groups uh, such as NSAC, um, the, you know, the National Sustainable Agricultural Co Coalition. Uh, that guy, Eric Diebel, is a fantastic spokesman for them. I've, I've had him on a couple of times and, and his predecessors. Anyway, they've worked hard in uh, Washington to bring uh, the concerns and policy suggestions um, that would assist a return to a more uh, sort of a fair regionalized food system, you know, more participation in small farmers for, for smaller farmers in a regional food system. I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about the, um, the they gathered some 1,200 signatures uh, from ranchers and, and cat, you know, uh, farmers of all every stripe and uh, put that into a letter which they sent to, uh, you know, to, to uh, Congress to address climate change. Um, talk about some of the things that were in that letter, because I thought that was really interesting. And I'm, I'm curious to think what you to hear what you're um, what you've heard about uh, the response to it. Yeah, if but any. I haven't really heard much, actually, about the response to it. Um, but I think it's powerful that they sent this letter that was signed by, you know, a diverse group of 1200 farmers around the country. And, it, and they did this cool thing where you can like click on, there's a map um, embedded in the letter and you can click on it and see, oh, it's actually, it's not 1200, it's 2100. Sorry, I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> oh, 2100 farmers. Uh, my typo, um, my typo. So, yeah. and you can, you can look on the map at where these farms are and they're all over the country and you can click and you can see the names and they're just really, really, you know, diverse orchards and, you know, small vegetable farms and grains. And, and it's, it's really people all over the country who are, are producing food and, you know, came together and signed this just to basically say, you know, the climate crisis is here and we're affected by this and we need to, we need to really start doing something about it. And, um, you know, it starts, they, mm. they, it starts out agriculture is on the front lines of a changing climate. And that's, that's sort of, a, a big um, statement that even if, you know, even if people kind of push back sometimes on, well, agriculture gets too much attention in terms of, you know, the emissions it produces compared to fossil fuel. And, and, and you know, there's, there's something to be said about that. But in terms of like, who's dealing with the effects of the climate crisis and whether we're going to be able to produce food on this planet going forward, I mean, farmers are already being affected yeah. in such intense ways this year alone. I mean, between wildfires destroying crops, um, the the storm in Iowa, floods in um, Louisiana, it's, I mean, farmers are losing crops all the time, and um, and I think the yeah. thing that NSAC does is they say, look, we're already paying for, we're already sending all this money after the disasters happen, right? It happens in the forms of disaster relief payments and and crop insurance and and you know, why don't we just start investing in practices that will build a system that can stand up to um, the climate crisis and instead of paying after the damage is done. Um, so some of the some of the stuff they talk about in the letter, 
Um, a lot of it is actually really similar to Representative Shelley Pingree's Agricultural Resilience Act. I feel like that's kind of a good template for like right. the kind of system ANZAC is um, advocating for. So, you know, it's incentivizing soil health practices like cover crops and reduced tillage, pasture-based livestock systems, farmland preservation, on-farm renewable energy. Um, it's just kind of really, oh, and, and of course, supporting small farms and local food systems um, at a higher level compared to what the federal government has been doing under every administration for the past several decades, which is really skewing support towards commodity ag. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So now if you, if you, if, if, uh, if Biden wins, um, and he saw, and he says, I need to talk to that incredibly intelligent <laughs> reporter, Lisa Held. Can you imagine? <laughs> um, I, I need, I need, I need her advice. <laughs> I, I need her guidance on, on what best to do. Like what, what would you say to him? Like how, because you really, you're so knowledgeable, Lisa. I mean, like trying to wean the country off of cheap food, off of commodity crops, which have such an impact on our global economy. You know, all it's so, it's so complex. It's so interwoven. It's like, where, where would we even yeah. begin to unravel the bird's nest that is our current, you know, disaster in the making? And, and where would you tell Biden to go first? Uh, when it comes to reforming our food system or reforming uh, agricultural policy, probably we'll keep it just down to that. Probably first, I would just you know be screaming, "We're running out of time!" I don't. Know. <laughs> I just yeah. uh, <laughs> right. My hair's on fire. I can't answer. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that that. I mean, I'm joking, but I'm also not in that. Like, I I think the yeah. the biggest thing right now is like. We just need every single solution that we could possibly muster on the table and we need to be acting fast and, you know, regardless of who is who is president, regardless of how you feel about, you know, if you're a Democrat or Republican, I mean, the climate crisis is here. And if we don't if we don't start really addressing it immediately, um, we're not going to be able to produce food. <laughs> and that's that's it. I mean, that's like. I mean, a habitable planet and the yeah. ability to produce food are, are basically the most, you know, they're the most basic things that, that we need. Um, and I, I mean, I think, I guess I what I would say, too, is I, I there's so many issues that people disagree on. Is this the best way? You know, should we get rid of CAFOs or should we have methane digesters or should we? But I mean, I think um, what yeah. I would tell them is to listen to scientists and to farmers and when I say farmers, I don't mean the farm lobby. And like, I think, you know, there's just been this tendency to just (laughs) go with what industry says and to take, you know, take the word of groups that say they represent farmers when in fact they represent big industrial companies. And I mean, I think it would be, it would go a long way if politicians started actually you know, paying attention to the interests of all kinds of farmers and applying really good research <laughs> to policies rather than, you know, being scared of Smithfield or whoever the company is, right? Sure. Well, it, well what it comes down to ultimately is uh, Citizens United, yeah, doesn't it? Because once you get that dark money out of politics, then you have a whole new ball game out there. 
But right now we are so crippled as a nation by the ability of these large corporations to buy politicians uh, that I, you know, it's, it's difficult to imagine any kind of meaningful reform until yeah. Citizens United is overturned. And that is probably not going to happen in my lifetime, <laughs> although it may in yours. Um, anyway, uh, this is the moment where you get to promote yourself shamelessly. Uh, you have a um, website. Where well, is it? Well, my website, uh, I have a personal portfolio. That's just lisaelaineheld.com. But I would encourage people to go to civileats.com, which is you know where the bulk of my yes. reporting, my regular reporting on agriculture and environmental issues is there. That's right. And don't forget, folks, tune in to Lisa yes. on the Farm Report. Um, where she dives into these issues in in ways that I am clearly not capable of. No, you absolutely are. <laughs> and that's why, and that's why I'm interviewing her. And not the other I'll have you on my. We'll have to switch it up, and I'll have you on my show, and we'll we'll just. Yes, we can talk about meat. Yes, my favorite subject. Anyway, Lisa, thank you so so much for joining me today. Big thanks to our sponsor and our engineer, and uh, see you next week, folks. Thanks so much for tuning in. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>